0: Invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. And we're going to begin reading at verse 1 and read through verse 18. But our text will specifically be, be verses 14 through 18. <clears throat> Let's give our attention to God's word this morning. Luke chapter 16. (coughs) He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do, since... My master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And you, if, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will, he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, I thank you that you give your word to divide between bone and marrow. You give your word to reveal spiritual truth. Give us the ears to hear it today. Uh, to understand it, uh, to be trained and uh, built up and strengthened by it, to, uh, Lord, we, we, we need this word, and so we pray for your spirit to speak it to us clearly, in Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning is rather short, just five verses, 14 through 18, but they are verses that pack a powerful punch. Uh, This is a fire hose of divine truth, and it is uh, aimed directly at the Pharisees, but we will uh, find uh, that they're uncomfortably uh, close to us as well. Uh, Because you see, what happens is in a few brisk moments, uh, and just with a few words, Jesus exposes these men uh, as wicked, wicked men. Uh, And particularly, what he does is he he takes the law, the law that they loved, the law that they... um, sort of wrapped around themselves as their righteousness. And Jesus takes that very law and exposes them for what they really are. They love the law, but for all the wrong reasons. And they use the law, but for all the wrong ends. And in a devastating reversal of fortune, Jesus takes that law and condemns them with the law. It reminds me of a documentary I just recently watched on ESPN called Fantastic Lies. It is a review of the um, 2006 case involving the uh, Duke lacrosse team, if you uh, remember that. Uh, Three members of that team were charged with uh, raping a woman at a party. Uh, The interim district attorney, Mike Nifong, decided to prosecute the case himself uh, because he was in the midst of an election seeking to be elected as the full-time district attorney. And so he was hoping this case would help uh, further that cause. Well, national media rushed to the story. Uh, It pushed all the right buttons. Here you have young, white, um, privileged males attending a prestigious private university and charged then with raping a black woman. And so feminist organizations, the NAACP, various social activists showed up on campus and in Durham leading protests uh, and marches, making demands, uh, Ruth Sheehan, a local columnist for the local newspaper, found her articles suddenly gaining national exposure. Uh, she uh, excoriated the Duke players, demanded that the coach of the team be fired. He was. Uh, the rest of the season was canceled. Uh, Nifong boasted to his campaign manager that uh, this case by itself was worth millions of dollars of free advertising and would help him win the election. And that's exactly what happened. He, he won the election uh, on the promise that he would make sure that these three young men paid the full penalty for their crime. The only problem was they didn't commit a crime. Naifong did. Naifong was the criminal. Uh, the truth came out in a stunning um, 10 minutes of cross-examination. Naifong had brought uh, his, his expert DNA his DNA expert as a witness, and he sort of sprung it on the defense. They weren't ready for him, but they decided to cross-examine him anyhow. Um, And in a stunning few minutes of cross-examination, the defense team proved that Nifong and his uh, DNA expert had conspired to hide evidence that showed without a doubt that it could not have been the three Duke players uh, participating in the crime. As the truth comes out, so they have the courtroom video, and you, the lawyer is examining the expert witness and asks him point blank, did you have a conversation with the district attorney? Um, did you agree to withhold this evidence? And the, the man very uncomfortably said, uh, well, the answer to that would have to be uh, yes. And you see Mike Nifong sitting over there once, very cocky, very confident, uh, put his face in his hands and uh, the judge glaring daggers at him. Uh, as, uh, and, and just in a moment, this man's life falls apart. Uh, he was convicted of crime, removed from office. He was disbarred. He was jailed uh, and has since filed bankruptcy. Well, that's what's happening in our text. Um, here you have these Pharisees, very, very confident men, very knowledgeable men. Men who um, loved the law, at least they professed to love the law, Uh, they, they used it to justify themselves. They used it to condemn Jesus Christ. And now suddenly Jesus picks up that law and turns it on them and in one fell swoop exposes them as the worst of sinners, as abominable sinners, worthy of eternal condemnation. That's the drama of the text. That's what's going on. Well, let's see how it unfolds. We need to start with the context because our text flows directly out of it. And uh, if you remember, Jesus told the story of the dishonest manager. It's a very strange parable, not uh, really a a favorite of many folks. Uh, Because here's this guy that has cheated his boss. He's been found out. And so what does he do? He cheats his boss again. And uh, he does so so that... Uh, he will gain friends in the community, and uh, he's provided for himself. And, And Jesus says the manager praises him, not for his dishonesty, but his shrewdness. This man was adding it up, and he was connecting the dots, and he was determining what he needed to do in order to provide for himself, and so he did it. And Jesus says the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Sinclair Ferguson summarized that saying, worldly people employ what they possess in light of what they think is their destiny. Christian people often fail to do so. Worldly people tend to act consistently with what they think is their destiny. You're going to live once and then you're going to die. So get what you can get while you can get it. Christians profess to believe we live and then we live forever. We will never die. And that the greatest joys are not to be found in this life, but in in a new heaven and a new earth. And yet we often fail to connect the dots and shrewdly pursue then our joys in eternal things. So Jesus is using that parable to urge his disciples, urge us, to use temporary things for eternal benefits. Eternal payback in a sense. Eternal rewards. So why don't we? Why don't we? Why is it so hard to give away temporary things in order to gain eternal things? You'd think it was a no-brainer. Right? Uh, Jim Elliott well said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And Jesus makes a direct connection between the way that we use our resources now and the way we're going to experience eternity. So what's the problem? What, what keeps us? Well, Jesus identifies it's a heart problem. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Money is not evil, is it? It's a gift that God gives, but the love of money is a great trap. Because, you see, because money has the power to provide things that look good to us, and even things that we need, food, shelter, clothing. But because money has this ability, money presents a lordship problem. In whom will we ultimately trust? What will we rely on? What will we pursue? And so, J.C. Ryle says, uh, thousands on every side are continually trying to do the things which Christ pronounces impossible. They are endeavoring to be friends of the world and friends of God at the same time. And hence, they live in a state of constant discomfort. They have too much religion in their hearts to be happy in the world and too much of the world in their hearts to be happy in their religion. I think that's pretty perceptive. I was reading an article, uh, one of the air, uh, uh, airplane flights, um, <clears throat> it was about, uh, they, they interviewed four different people in four different financial categories. A guy was making a million dollars a year, a guy was making about 350 another one was about 120 another one was living on minimum wage. It's very interesting that the the top three guys, the, the, the guy making a million and 350 and 120, uh, when they asked the, you know, they asked about how they went about their finances. When they asked the final question, um, how happy, scale of 1 to 10, how happy would you say you are? They were each 8 or 9. They were happy. They were using their money to get the things that they wanted. They, they were, um, they wanted the world and they were able to get the world as, as they saw and so they were, they were very happy. The only guy that was not happy was the guy in the bottom of the rung who was not able to get the things that he wanted. But it just struck me that these, these guys, and, and maybe you've experienced this, um, unbelievers sometimes seem just more happy and blessed than believers do. They're just living their life. They're enjoying it. And Christians are dragging themselves out of bed to get to church and trying to do the right thing and wrestling with these financial decisions. And what's going on? We're, we're supposed to be, right? Love, joy, peace, patience people. Oh, I think Jason Rowell's onto something here that we've, we, there's a conflict going on. We, we often have too much of the, uh, of the religion in our hearts to be really happy in the world. You've maybe experienced that. You, you maybe even thought to yourself, I, I almost wish I could live like that but I just know too much about the reality of things and who God is and what's going to happen at the end of the world. I cannot be happy as a pagan, and yet there's too much of the world in our hearts to be happy as a Christian. Reichen says we love God too much to be satisfied with the world, but we love our money too much to find our true, true joy in God. We're like a man with two lovers, and we don't find joy in either. And so money has this way of messing with us and exposing us. How we spend our money and where we devote our time speaks volumes about what we're really living for, what we think our destiny is, and who our Lord actually is. Uh, Beg was just telling a story about a friend of his who was a lawyer, worked for le- a Christian legal defense counsel. A man had come to him asking for help, and so the, the, uh, the lawyer said, sure, uh, you know, why, don't we, why don't we meet tomorrow? By the way, when you come in, bring your checkbook. And the guy said, well, I thought, I thought your services were for free. Why do I need my checkbook? And the lawyer said, well, uh, our services are free, uh, but I'm asking you to bring your checkbook because I find that a short survey of the checkbook will tell me an awful lot I need to know about your life. Would you want to bring your checkbook? I think I would suddenly lose mine. And it gets really uncomfortable when somebody's going to open up your checkbook or maybe look at your calendar and with discerning eyes say, okay, what, what actually makes you tick? What are you, what really, uh, where is your heart actually? What are you living for truly? Well, the Pharisees are feeling the strain and the discomfort of this conversation. And so we get to uh, verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed them. You could just get the picture. Here are these guys, probably a small group of them, gathered together like schoolyard bullies. And they're scoffing at Jesus. They're ridiculing him. They've done this in the past. It's a common uh, response for these guys. Uh, they sneered at the way that he befriended tax collectors and prostitutes. They said that his miracles were of the devil. And now he's talking about financial things and, and, they're, and they're mocking him. Maybe because he's poor. What do you know about money? He doesn't have any. Um, but, but Luke tells us that the, the motive behind it is that they're lovers of money. They're mocking what Jesus is saying because they fundamentally disagree with it. It's not that they misunderstand Jesus. Luke says they heard what he was saying. They heard him saying all these things. They know exactly what he's talking about. They know exactly who he's looking at, and they don't like it. They loved money. It was a close friend of theirs. It was, uh, they enjoyed his company. They loved what it promised, they liked what it provided, and and so instead of using their money to gain friends like the shrewd guy, they used their friends to gain money. And so they invited the wealthy people to their parties, the influential people to dinner because they could get ahead that way. You see, their lives reveal where their love really lies. I think it's a good thing for us to just examine, where does our love really lie? Reichen, I thought, had some helpful, just a list of things to maybe to help us discern our own hearts in this. He says, when we're anxious about our finances, not trusting God to provide for our needs, we are in love with money and its power to make us feel secure. When we find our thoughts returning again and again to something we want to buy, we are in love with money and its power to get us what we want. When we find ourselves wishing we had some material possession God has given to somebody else, when we're envious, we're in love with money and the convenience or pleasure it seems to bring. When we spend more time complaining about what we do not have, rather than rejoicing in what we do have, we're in love with money and looking to our possessions rather than God for contentment and joy. When it seems difficult or even impossible to give a full biblical tithe or make a sacrificial gift to gospel work, we are more in love with money than we are with the gospel and what it can do to change the world. So you see, money exposes us. What do we most truly love? As American Christians, this issue comes right to our home plate. You can't love both, not with equal devotion. So what do you really love? And here's the clincher, God knows. God knows. Whatever, wherever you might think you are, God knows where you actually are. The heart is desperately wicked, the Bible says. It's deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Well, God can. And God does. And that's what Jesus tells these men. He inserts the, the penetrating reality of God into what they thought was the privacy of their own little perverted heart. And Jesus speaks first of what God knows, God's vision, and then his, God's values, and then God's voice in the law. So, first of all, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. This is so common among people. We all do it. We justify ourselves. The reason I'm angry is because you did such and such. It's very logical. Uh, if you wouldn't have said what you said, or if you'd have said it in a slightly different way, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't be angry. Um, we justify ourselves by looking at other people. Okay, I know I did this, and that's not right, but look, I'm not like that guy. And we often point to external things, to the people who do really bad stuff, the rapists and the murderers and the, the people who steal from their companies, whatever. People do this all the time. I'm not as bad as the other person. I'm not sleeping around. I don't, I don't murder people. It's just all self-justification. And Jesus just blows it all away by saying, God knows your heart. God knows your heart, and the heart is where the real you lives. All the things that you do or or don't do, it's coming out out of your heart. It's the wellspring of life. It's what your mouth speaks out of, and your heart tells the truth about you. So, okay, you don't sleep around, but in your heart, God knows you wish you could. He knows about your daydreams and fantasies. You see, Jesus just rips the... Thin veneer of human morality and human righteousness just rips it off. And you're left there, you see, naked, absolutely naked before the eyes of God with the ugly truth of the human heart. The Pharisees, in this specific instance, would have justified their relationship with wealth. They would have said, look at the, just read your Bible. God blesses people who obey Him. Look at Abraham, look at Job. Uh, God promises to give wealth to those who honor him. The reason we're wealthy is because we obey the law. They were convinced of this truth. Jesus says, God knows your heart. God knows that in their heart they love money, not God. And then Jesus exposes, gives them an insight into what God delights in. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. I saw uh, just on Sermon Audio this week, I was uh, just looking for something to, to listen to. I was doing some tasks and uh, I saw a, a man had taken this phrase, just this phrase, and had listed a several, had several sermons on various things that men exalt and God uh, finds abominable. And the first was entertainment, uh, the second was sports, and the third was, I had to chuckle, a country music. <laughs> that would be a fun sermon to preach, I think, although it might... Uh, it might offend some of you. Uh, I'm not sure that's what this text is about, but I think, uh, I think he's onto to something. The things that we naturally sort of like and uh, enjoy with the world, we so often don't have a critical eye. God does hate entertainment, the entertainment industry that exalts in violence, that exalts in uh, sensuality and sexual immorality. He, he hates it. He hates the idolatry of sports. Where did, that, where did that come from? That doesn't come from God. That people throw themselves into sports as though it were a, an ultimately significant thing, that, that's not from God. He hates the uh, music that, uh, that glories in fornication and violence and sin and self-centered living, he, right, that is not art to God. It's not art. It's an abomination to God. You see, we we need to recapture, in a sense, as a church, 21st century church, the category of worldliness. That used to be a functioning category in people's lives. Now, too often they defined it... Um, not very well. So, so worldliness. When my dad was growing up, was playing uh, cards with faces on them. Now, there's a reason for that, but that was just sort of identify the worldliness. Or, um, in other in other places, it's it's wearing the wrong kind of clothing. It's uh, it's it's drinking alcohol, for instance. It uh, it's def- going to movie theaters. Well, that's uh, those are not helpful categories. But there is a category for worldliness. It's loving the things the world loves, the things that God hates. It's just assuming that it's okay when it's not okay. God God finds it abominable. You see, there's reasons that the wrath of God is coming on the world. And the reasons are the things that we see right in front of us. Now, the great irony here, of course, is that the Pharisees who prided themselves on being very holy, are in fact utterly worldly. They have worldliness buried in the depth of their heart. And Jesus sees it and he, and he calls it an abomination. An abomination in the Old Testament, it's a law word. It speaks of something that God detests and is ripe for judgment. It's, it's often attached to gross sexual sin. Jesus here attaches it to the love of money. That's a word for American Christians. Riken, again, I think says helpfully, we are generally inclined to think that the love of money is a small moral failing. It's much further down the list of evil deeds than something like cursing against God or committing sexual sin. But according to Jesus, the love of money is an appalling betrayal of our love for God and sets us squarely against the kingdom of God. It's an abomination to God. And it's a law word, as I said. They would recognize this from their reading of the Torah. It's a law word. And Jesus then moves directly to a discussion of the law. The law and the prophets were until John. Until then, the kingdom. Since in the, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. In other words, gospel doesn't uh, remove the law of God. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Now, what is Jesus doing? He's talking to the men who believe that they're experts in the law. The law and the prophets stands for the Old Testament. And and these men, they studied the Old Testament. They memorized vast portions of the Old Testament. They're experts in the Old Testament, but they don't keep it. They don't keep the law. In fact, they find a whole bunch of ways around the law. And the essence of the law they utterly miss. What's the essence of the law? First commandment, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength, and neighbor as yourself. That's the law. It's love. A passion for God. A desire, and a hunger to bless people. To actually love them. But see, that's what they didn't do. They loved money. They loved seats of honor. They loved the praises of men. And then Jesus levels against them the charge of adultery. Now this looks out of the blue. You'll notice in your Bible, in my Bible, it's a completely separate paragraph. And Jesus starts talking about divorce and remarriage and adultery. Why does Jesus suddenly go to the seventh commandment? He's been talking about money. Well, because it's the most shameful sin of their day. Everyone understands what it's about. But primarily because Jesus knows they're guilty of it, He knows their heart. They have sexually perverse, dead hearts. They're men of the world. They know the law forbids adultery, and yet they want to satisfy satisfy the desires of their perverse flesh, and so they found ways around the law about marriage remarriages. So rabbis through the centuries. And made various exception clauses that got really silly. If your wife burned your supper, you were allowed to divorce her. If you, some rabbis even said, if you found a woman that was prettier than your wife, if you were a godly man, you were allowed to put her aside and go marry the prettier wife. And and you could claim that you're a lawkeeper. As you're doing it, the law allows it in that, in that system. And Jesus just lays it wide open. You're adulterous. There are probably some of these guys standing there rebuking Jesus who are on their second, maybe their third wife. So Jesus grabs something that is obviously scandalous and he attaches it directly to them in the most shameful public public way possible they are exposed in public as no different from the prostitutes that they despise it is an it is an incredible turn of events they are suddenly awfully exposed and jesus presses it there's no escape from the law you, you can't rewrite it. There's not one jot that's going to be changed or removed. We don't get the right to rewrite God's commands. We often try to do so. Try to soften it, try to, to make it more palatable, make it more doable. But, but the law, it just you can't do it. Jesus says it is easier for the entire universe to disintegrate than for the least little jot of the law to be removed. It would be easier for all the galaxies to just disappear. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of the Lord endures forever. It stands. It stands today. People today in the world around us, they act like it's just a silly something written a long time ago by religious fanatics. It has nothing to do with me today. And that law stands every single day as the word of God, and it condemns sinners every single day. And it stands over us. It stands as what is required of men and women and children. And it it pronounces its sentence every day, the soul that sins shall surely die. Paul writes in Romans 3.19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. That means, friends, that the law of God stands today. Becoming a Christian did not mean that the law has disappeared. Nothing got erased in terms of the law of God. It still stands as God's will. And it's not going away. And it means, you see, that just as these Pharisees were exposed, you and I have been exposed. See, It's very easy for us to look at the world around us and we see the external sins and it's easy for us to assume that the law speaks to them. But God knows our heart. And the law speaks to us. Boys and girls, I'll share an embarrassing story with you. I don't do this very often. But I think it makes the point. Have you ever been in a situation where you are charging someone with doing something else? and you suddenly find that you're the most egregious example of it. Well, when I was a little guy in school, um, I had this recurring problem. I, I enjoyed recess a great deal and uh, participated vigorously, but sometimes there, were, there was more Dale than there was Levi, and I would um, bust the seam of my pants. Now, as a 10-year-old boy, that is, that is tough stuff. And I remember going to the bathroom and some teacher would come and she'd sew it up or whatever. It was an awful experience. I wouldn't recommend. Nowadays, of course, kids just let their pants hang down to their knees anyhow. It's no big deal. <laughs> I would have been in style. <clears throat> what I want you to think about, boys and girls, is what, what if I had no knowledge that this had happened, all right? And I noticed another kid who had a rip in the side of their pants. And I started to make fun of them. And I'm laughing at him, and I'm pointing out to everyone, look at Johnny. He's got got a rip in his pants. Look at him, and I'm laughing and sneering, and somebody says, "Uh, Van Dyke, the entire bottom of your jeans are gone. That'd be awful. That'd be so embarrassing, because now everybody's going to be looking at you, and and, uh, the exact thing you were charging someone else with doing, now that's coming right back at you. Well, that's the Pharisees. And that's what the law does. You point your finger at somebody else and you you notice their sin. You get very upset about it, very uptight about it. You, you justify your own sin because of it. And then the law comes right around and just nails you. Look at your heart. God knows your heart. He knows your pride. He knows your lust. He knows your perversions. He knows your impatience. He knows what you're really how much you desperately need applause and live for it. He knows that you've made your reputation your mistress. You've made your work your God. He knows all of it. He knows the the words that you speak in anger to your husband or wife, and he knows those hateful, wicked things you think and you don't say and you pride yourself because at least you kept your mouth shut, but you never deal with the reality of the awful heart that spawned the thought. You see, God knows it all, and the law, friends, comes to you, and the law comes to me, and it exposes us. And if, you, if we will not allow that work to happen, we're never going to understand the gospel. And that's our last point here, the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus says the law and the, gospel, the prophets were until John, but he says they have continuing relevance. Not a jot is going to be removed, but by the grace of God, praise God, there's another message in the world, and that is a gospel message. It's a good news message for lawbreakers. Good news is being preached that God has found a way to justify lawbreakers. The law says the soul that sins shall surely die, and God has found a way so that the law can have its way, and yet sinners not be destroyed. And that way, of course, is Jesus Christ. That God in Jesus Christ has punished sin, laying our sin on Him. Jesus bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we are saved not simply by grace. We are saved by justice. When you stand before God on the the last day, you don't simply plead grace, you plead justice. Jesus died in my place. Jesus died for me. Father, He was offered to sinners, and as a sinner I receive Him by faith. The law has been paid for. My sin has been atoned for. That's the wonder of the gospel. Now, do you understand it? Because the evidence of those who get it, the evidence of those who understand the reality of the law and the glory of the gospel, the evidence is that they run to the gospel. Notice what Jesus says. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. You see that in the tax collectors and the prostitutes. They couldn't get enough of Jesus. They gathered around him. They pressed towards him. They wanted to hear. You see it when this this wicked woman who comes to Simon the Pharisee's house. And they're in front of all those religious, self-righteous, judging men. This sinful woman weeps over the feet of Jesus and washes her feet with her hair. You see, what drives that? What makes men cut a hole in a roof of a house to let their paralyzed friend down in front of Jesus? They get it. There is someone in the world who is able to heal paralyzed people. What makes this, this woman with an issue of bleeding for 12 years, who suffered for so long, willing now to press her way through the crowd, not stopping until she got to Jesus? She needed Jesus, you see. She, she understood that she was lost without Jesus. And the people who didn't get it stood on the sidelines. The people who didn't understand their need, you see, whatever they might have believed or not believed about Jesus was irrelevant. They didn't make. They didn't connect the dots. They didn't understand that they were in desperate need of a Savior, and this man was a Savior. And so when Jesus comes to Jericho, the blind man will not stop shouting, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the people say, shut up. He's not going to shut up. The Syrophoenician woman, she's not going to take a no from Jesus. Her daughter needs help, and Jesus can provide the help. You see, that's what Jesus is talking about. When you get it, when you get the gospel, then you you don't rest until you have forced your way in. You don't rest until you've found Jesus realize that around the world today men and women hounded by sin bound in darkness are hearing the good news of the gospel and are forcing their way into the kingdom they are willing to lose possessions they're willing to lose their their job their family their reputation their life they're willing to lose it all because they must have jesus and if they don't have jesus they know they will die. That nothing in, wor- in this world is worth having if you don't have him. You see, the gospel is, is great news, but only for great sinners. And if you're not willing to let the law do its work and expose you and show you what you actually are in your heart, if you're not willing to go there, then the gospel can't reach you. to. It just doesn't make sense to you. So where are you today? Because this these things are written for us, and for our salvation. Where are you today in terms of the law? Do you find in your heart an apathy for the things of God? Do you find that that you, you believe these things, but the truth is that they don't they don't stir you? Can I just confess that that happens to me? And I'll be writing a sermon and. And I'll see the, the way the people respond and I'll just, do not I don't, I don't respond that way. What's wrong with me? I'm not connecting the dots. I'm not standing before a holy God, you see, and, and allowing the law to do its work so that I realize that I, I desperately, deeply, truly need Jesus. We all get in that rut. We tend to justify ourselves. We, we're satisfied with our meager meager sort of Christian living and our meager love for God. But friends, the law this morning comes and condemns us. The law says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. That is what the law demands. God doesn't say, let's put on a veneer of Christianity. He doesn't even say, let's put on a nice thick veneer of Christianity. He says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And every single violation of that law, is worthy of condemnation. That's what the law says. Do you do that? No, you do not. Do you need Jesus? Yes, you do. The gospel alone, friends, can save us. Came across a wonderful hymn by Horatius Boner. I don't think I've ever heard it before. It's called, Upon a Life I Have Not Lived. This is what he says. This is a a sinner who's running to Jesus. Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Not on the tears which I have shed, not on the sorrows I have known, another's tears, another's griefs, on these I rest, on these alone. Lord, I believe. Oh, deal with me as one who has thy word believed. I take the gift. Lord, look on me as one who has thy gift received. Upon a life you have not lived, upon a death you did not die, that's where you stake your entire eternity. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Where the law condemns, Jesus comes in the gospel and says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? Do you believe that good news? Let's praise God for it. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, I thank you that you expose us as sinners, people who are justly deserving of uh, everlasting condemnation. And not simply because of things way in our past, but things this morning, things in our heart right now. We cannot make ourselves good enough, and so we rest, Lord, upon a life we have not lived and a death we did not die. We rest on Jesus. Lord, I pray this morning that you would use your word to expose us, and Lord, I pray particularly for those who have been in a fantasy world of religious practice and religious beliefs, but have never had the law expose their heart. Father, I pray that you give the grace for us to see ourselves. And that all the wickedness that we do, all the wickedness that we think comes from the wickedness within. And we cannot fix it, but only Jesus can. And that by an imputed righteousness, not our own, God in heaven, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this good news. I pray that we would believe it. I pray, Lord, that we would force our way into it, that we would get on our knees by our bed tonight and plead that you would give us Jesus and that we would not stop asking until we know that we belong to him and he belongs to us. Oh, God, I pray that this message, these words that we've heard this morning do not condemn anyone here on the last day, but that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would use them as means for our salvation. These are such holy things. Lord, have grace. Show mercy. Give us Jesus.